Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers. We've got new sticker sheets that we're super excited about, so definitely go take a look. You can also get free shipping if you spend $20 Canadian or more at our shop. That's just a couple sticker sheets or like a sticker sheet plus some of our die cut stickers. And as always, you can join our Patreon to receive a monthly sticker and print in the mail from Olivia. So we want to thank you all for your patience with us over the last few weeks. We've been a bit on and off with uploads of episodes. You know, after over three years of doing this podcast weekly, we've decided to start uploading episodes every two weeks. Part of this is because I'm really busy with my master's research, but also it's partly so that we can start working on new projects to put out. So we're really excited about that. But yeah, being doing a master's project is very weird. And I know it varies a huge amount between master's projects. But for me, it sort of looked like the first year's a certain amount of work, uh, lots of insect ID and prepping field seasons. And now I feel like it's a lot of insect ID plus like five other big things like analyzing all my statistics, really getting the data from other places and write. it's going to be writing and it's going to mean prepping for my master's defense. So it's going to be really busy. I'm excited, but but yeah, it does mean that unfortunately, as much as I'd like to put out a weekly episode, it just doesn't seem quite feasible in order to make sure I finish my master's on time. Yeah, this is such an exciting and big time for you academically. And, you know, that that does come first as much as we love this podcast and it's our favorite thing to do. But also school is important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we like school, want to do well. What yeah, can we do? and I honestly can't believe we've made so many episodes of this podcast. This is the 160th episode, which is just wild. And it's still really close to our heart. But we also have other new ideas that we're so excited to bring to you all. So releasing just two episodes per month instead of four will really allow us to make sure those episodes are still consistent and high quality. And it will also give us room to grow as science communicators. Yeah, I'm really excited about it this year. I don't know. I just feel like I'm looking forward to a year of just a lot of new opportunities and excitement. So thank you so much to everyone for sticking with us. And of course, any things you buy from our store or our Patreon, it it really goes back to like supporting our projects like and just covering our costs. So like every every purchase you make, it helps us out a lot. Yeah. Like when you're supporting Beyond Blathers, you're really supporting us as science communicators and like the projects that we have that we're working on in the background and yeah it it just really means a lot so thank you all for all your support over these three years and we're still doing beyond blathers and we will be here every two weeks yeah so this week we are talking about a really cute little insect the firefly i am so excited to talk about it because there's really a lot to go through here and and they're really just this adorable little glowing thing they're just so magical they're like fairies yeah I'm so excited to do this episode because yeah I'm, I'm surprised we haven't done it yet and I really don't know much about fireflies at all and I I'm not sure that I've ever seen a firefly in person oh really so not in BC 
No, I, I don't huh. know. Like maybe I'm just not anywhere where I see them, but I've never. I mean, I also haven't seen them in Alberta, but they're all over Canada. Um, The only place you can't find them is Nunavut. And really, they're kind of all around the world. They're pretty, pretty much everywhere. But it's weird because, yeah, I also the first time I saw one was in Ontario. And even then, I didn't see that many. So I don't know if it was like after firefly season, like we'd see the occasional one blinking at us in the woods. When I was in Malaysia this past winter, we looked at doing a sort of excursion out to see fireflies at night, but we didn't end up doing it. I'm kind of sad that I didn't, but it was like it was like a multi-hour drive and then you're in the dark and you have to take like a boat into this like swamp in the night and we were we were kind of like, hmm, I don't know, but but I I feel like it would have been really magical and like tangled like, you know? Yeah. Kate, this is so interesting you say that because when I was researching fireflies, there were so many conservation papers relating to ecotourism and like benefits and drawbacks of firefly ecotourism. And I was like, wait, is this like a big thing? I've never heard of this. So it's really cool to hear that like that you've seen it, you've heard of it. Yeah. No, this was like a a quite famous thing. Like my mom, my mom, because she's a travel agent and she said it's a really popular thing to do there. So yeah. Wow. Okay, this is very interesting because we are going to talk about it a little bit at the end of the episode. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, I really want to get into it. But first, let's see what Blathers has to say. So if you bring him a firefly, he'll say, The firefly isn't a fly at all. It is a beetle, you see, and one known for its ghastly glowing backside. This light is called bioluminescence, and it is caused by, by a chemical reaction in the rump. Males flash about in the night sky to attract females, while their larvae turn on the glow to put off predators. Speaking of their yucky young, firefly larvae love to dine on snails. Who? Ew. <laughs> oh, bladders. <laughs> he hates them. I really thought he'd say something nice, because they're so yeah. pretty, but no. They are really pretty. Ugh. He also, like, stole all of my, my main leads already so i'm a little annoyed because yeah fireflies they are beetles and their little twinkly backsides that is created by a chemical reaction in their bodies or in their rump as he says and that's pretty much it so thanks everyone for coming uh (laughs) we'll see you in two weeks just kidding of course but uh that's a very good summary at least so (laughs) very accurate let's start with the first thing lightning bugs as beetles they are beetles, not flies, or worms, as their nickname glowworm may suggest. And they exist within the very aptly named Lampyridae family, which I think is cute because it sounds like a lamp, Lampyridae. Yeah. And many species within this group are able to glow. I actually think all of the larvae can glow, or at least almost all of them. There's always one exception or something. But there are also species which do not glow as adults or the adult female may glow, but the male may not. All kinds of combinations. You may know fireflies as lightning bugs, candle flies, fire beetles, fire worms, lantern flies. So many good names. I will say, though, that glowworm is usually a name that refers specifically to a species of firefly where the female actually retains or sorry, I I shouldn't say species because I can't remember if it's a species or a group. So there is a type of firefly where the female retains her larval worm-like form into adulthood. 
and, and she'll be quite glowy, but we'll talk more about larva later. Let's talk about the glow itself. I love the word glow. It just feels very like TikTok makeup guru, like getting that effortless natural shine. And for <laughs> lightning bugs, they really are the definition of a natural glow because inside of their bodies, they contain all the necessary ingredients for that light. They have ATP, which is also known as energy. They have oxygen and they have chemicals called luciferins. In addition to this, they also have an enzyme that breaks down all of that good stuff, and it's called luciferase. The mixing of chemicals produces light energy. And this is a random tidbit that I found in like a Purdue University article, so maybe take it with a grain of salt. But apparently, these chemicals were given the name luciferase and luciferins because they're named after Lucifer, the fallen angel of light. And I thought that was kind of interesting. What's special about this chemical reaction is that unlike most lights in your home, this light isn't giving out heat. Insect bodies don't handle direct heat well, so producing heat with your light would probably be pretty like deadly. <laughs> so yeah, they don't that that's kind of cool. They produce this cold light. I also love that these lights are sometimes different colors depending on the species. So some species have more of a green color, others yellow, and then there's others who have this sort of orangey amber color. Wow, that's so cool. And what is the purpose of these lights? Yeah, it's it's mostly a mate attraction thing. So a female will usually kind of sit in the bushes or trees and she'll be blinking out her light and males will also be blinking out a light. And the female's usually looking for a male who can brink, who can brink, who can blink <laughs> the brightest and the fastest because he's very fit. You know, he he's a good mate choice. But she also has to make sure that she's looking for mates that are of her own species. She doesn't want to bother with ones that aren't. So depending on the rate and pattern of the light blinking, that can help both the male and female find their own kind. The other cool thing is that fireflies can blink and wink out very, very quickly. But as we've learned, they're using a chemical reaction to produce that light, not just flipping a light switch on and off again. So in order to achieve this rapid twinkling, they are allowing oxygen to be added to their chemical reaction at controlled intervals. So no oxygen, no light. Oxygen flows kind of slow in the body, so they need a different way instead of just like kind of turning on the oxygen ta tap to get the light to turn on. They need a, a faster way than that. And this is where nitric oxide comes in. So when oxygen comes into the light organ, it binds to mitochondrial cells within that organ and doesn't travel into the cocktail that makes up the light. But when nitric oxide is pumped into the organ, it releases the oxygen from the mitochondria and the oxygen flows then into contact with the other chemicals. So the oxygen is already in the cell. It just needs to be released. And nitric oxide is great for this job because it dissipates really quickly and therefore can be pumped in and sort of like go away really fast. So that way they can sort of control that on and off action really easily. Wow. Does that make sense? <laughs> I know that's yeah. very like heavy science chemistry, but. No, I think it does. And it's also just so interesting that it is such a complex chemical process. Yeah, and I think I've simplified it a lot. Like there's, I think, some more chemicals involved, but 
if if you're really curious about that, you can Google it. I, I'm not a chemistry person, so I, I personally don't find it very interesting. But I think it's cool that it's like chemicals. And because there's so many different ways that things bioluminesce. Some use like sort of like other organisms within them that are causing the bioluminescence. It's just really cool to see the different ways it can happen. Yeah. Or like thinking back to the Venus flower basket episode, which was a long time ago, but is still one of my favorite episodes that I did the research for. They glow, but they're actually, it's like fiber optics. It's not even bioluminescence. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a really cool chemical process as well that I don't really understand. <laughs> I also like, this is so random, but like speaking of glowworms, they're the glowworms, of course, we got a common name. It applies to a bunch of different animals. There are these fungus gnats that their larvae are also called glowworms and you can find them in Australian caves and they'll like put out these glowing like drips of silk to catch their prey. I really recommend Googling this. It's super cool. But that's another really neat form of bioluminescence. And it's kind of relevant here because if you hear someone use the word glowworm, keep in mind they may not be talking about something that's going to grow into a firefly. Right. Well, and so going back to fireflies, are there any other reasons that they glow or is it just for mating? For the larva, they glow as a warning for predators. So like other insect larvae, baby fireflies are kind of useless against something as large as, say, a bird, for example. Their best defense is that they taste very disgusting. Just <laughs> an awful taste. <laughs> I imagine they taste like a glow stick inside. Yeah, that's what I imagine too. Like this like battery acid flavor. <laughs> Not that I know what that tastes like, but I feel like I can imagine it. Just very like sparky. And so the glow is just to be like, hey, not only am I a bright color and I've got reds on my body and all this like warning coloration, but also I'm glowing like I'm radioactive. So don't eat me. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you're using that method of defense, it sort of requires that the bird has tried to eat one of you before or that like you're truly so noxious that like evolutionarily they just have like the instinct not to eat you. So it's not the best method, but it is a method. The other cool thing is that firefly larvae look completely bizarre. I really do encourage you to search a firefly larva up. They look a bit like a cross between a pangolin and a caterpillar because they have these like scaly plates all along their body and they're weirdly flat, like a flat snake with no head. I should also mention that fireflies spend most of their lives as larvae, so this is basically how they look most of the time. The adults really only live a few weeks. Oh, I'm looking them up. Oh, wow. Yeah, they look almost like little dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, they're very prehistoric looking, almost mechanical. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Definitely look it up. But yeah, I mean, going back to the purpose of light flashing and glowing... There is another reason that adult fireflies may glow. The use of flashing light in adult fireflies isn't the only way that they find mates. Some fireflies don't actually glow at all. And instead, they use the common insect tactic for finding mates, which is detecting pheromones. So they smell their mate out, essentially. You know, and also a lot of fireflies will not just 
use flashing lights or the pheromone detection, but instead we'll use a combination of the two because why not? Makes it easier. Because they're using light to communicate with each other, they do have to have really good vision. It's really cute because if you look at a picture of a firefly, their head is usually covered by this very distinctive shieldy plate. But under that, they have these huge cartoonish round eyes. And it makes sense because they have to be able to see uh, and see well at night to find partners. So they've got big eyes for that. And I genuinely think it's one of the reasons why we find them so charismatic and people just love them so much because they glow. And then when you catch them in the jar or whatever, and you look at them, they're actually really cute. And yeah, they just have this very romantic way of finding love with that glowy lantern butt. Yeah, I I definitely associate fireflies with romance. I don't know if it's literally just because of the scene in Tangled. Or yeah, or like the that. Princess Frog. <laughs> yeah, princess is it frog, is it yeah. Tangled or Princess and the Frog? Is it well? Both? Tangled has the lanterns, and then Princess and the Frog has like these like weird like hillbilly lightning bugs. Oh um, wait, those are lanterns, not fireflies, right? Or like yeah, yeah. Tangled is the the lanterns, but then uh, I, like I, I guess like fireflies. <laughs> princess and the Frog has Rewrite. like the firefly that sings the like really cute song. Yeah. It is actually very romantic. It's very cute. I think they are romantic. Okay, well, I, I'm not really not as familiar with my Disney movies as you are. Oh, yeah, I've got my <laughs> trivia down. <laughs> <laughs> but there is one firefly that is not very romantic or wholesome. Okay, so these are kind of weird names, so bear with me here. The genus Photuris contains within it... <laughs> I have. I know this is a weird way of saying it, but but you'll see why in a second. Uh, contains within it these very. I I don't know if I should say clever because obviously like evolutions, but like these sinister female beetles. Like most other fireflies, these beetles they twinkle at night, but they've specially modified their flashing to lure in not males of their own species, but males of another genus of firefly. Photunus. So we've got Photunus and Photunus. <laughs> uh, or sorry, Photuris and Photunus. Oh my gosh, even I'm messing up here. <laughs> As Photunus approach the warm glow of their potential lady love, Photuris will grab them and devour them alive. So they're just luring them in. It's crazy. And the fierce females do this not just because they're hungry. But because the genus Photunus possesses something they really, really need, a chemical called lucibophagans, which they aren't able to produce on their own. And they really want lucibophagans because they're basically a jumping spider repellent. So if you've listened to our spider episodes, you know that jumping spiders are amazing predators. They're fast and they're really just like jumping around the leaves and bushes where the fireflies may also be hiding. So they're definitely a predator of concern. So if the Photuniz female gets lucibophagins in her body, she'll be safe from one of the scariest predators around. And not only that, but she will pass these lucibophagins on to her offspring. Wow. And it also looks like it's not just repellent for the jumping spiders, though that's a really common one, but it can also be distasteful to a number of predators. Honestly, I respect her. Me too. It's a great (laughs) plan. It's smart. (laughs) So cool. 
And so wait, does that mean fireflies are predators then? No. So pretty much all the other firefly adults don't even eat other than going around sipping on like the occasional nectar from flowers for a little extra energy boost. So it's really important that the firefly larvae get a lot of fuel before they metamorphose. So for firefly larvae, as Blathers mentioned, their prey is largely these kind of gummy things like snails, worms, and slugs. Firefly larvae are really active predators and they've got these, okay, so they're They're so wild. Okay. For one, they have heads that retract into the front part of their body. They also have venomous mandibles that they use to subdue their prey. And the larvae have another defense for themselves, not just the whole they taste bad thing, although I guess it's kind of related, where they have these pockets along their body called versible organs. And like the name suggests, when the larva is threatened, they basically push these organs like a balloon out of their body. And sometimes they look spiky, sometimes they're blobby, but the organs themselves will be covered in this very like repellent smell. In some cases, it smells like pine oil. In others, it might be like a more bitter smell. And in other species, it may not have any smell that us humans can detect at all, but we've seen that other insects like ants avoid the larva when this aversible organ is out. So there must be some odor or chemical that we don't really know what it is or can't smell it. Yeah, the larvae look predacious. They look they look like almost like militaristic, like a tank or something. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think they're called Campidiaform larvae. So It's a term that basically refers to like this very mobile, predaceous, typically predaceous, kind of hardcore looking larva. And it's interesting, like I'm taking this, I'm taking my very first entomology course, which is a weird thing to say (laughs) at this point in my life, but my very first like official entomology course and I'm learning about all these larvae and like it's actually pretty common. Well, not common, but like you see it in a, a large range of insects, these very intense, aggressive looking larvae that look a lot more active than even like their adult forms. So yeah, the, like the, these firefly larvae, they'll be climbing trees to find their prey. They might, you know, like actively stalk them. They might sort of lay in wait. They may also be scavengers. So they're not always actively eating, like preying upon things, but they're really cool. And like, of course, the whole time that they're looking for prey, or even if they're sitting around, they're glowing. So that's just like kind of amazing. If if I found a glowing larva, oh my gosh, I would be screaming with excitement. <laughs> but like you also probably won't find them unless you're really like either because they'll hang out in the sort of top layer of the soil or in leaf litter or under logs. So you would have to kind of be looking for bugs, I think, to find them. But, you know, if anyone's listening and they they're like, ah, oh, no, we see these all over the place. They're like on the side of my house or whatever. Let me know because I'm curious. But it, it seems like from what I read, they're kind of, they like a, a moist, secluded place to hang out. Sounds like they should be in my basement suite. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> you get all the weird. <laughs> I get a lot of weird bugs. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But that'd be cool. Something glowing in the dark. Yeah. And like, they do like have a bit of variation too, so... It would be cool to like find out what firefly species and what their larvae look like in your area so you can learn. And this is also kind of random, but like if you have pets, like 
frogs or lizards and you like sometimes give them bugs from outside, don't get them fireflies because they can be deadly for frogs and lizards. So like just be careful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that's a very random PSA, but I have friends that have like, yeah, they'll just like feed their bearded dragon like moths or things from outside. So just double check on that. Don't don't give them something yucky. And so how are fireflies doing in the wild? You said they can be found all over the world? Yeah, there's like 2,200 species of firefly described. And they're, yeah, all over the world. Most common, though, in moist habitats like swamps, wetlands, and bogs. But some can also be found in deserts and like grasslands, very diverse habitats. But in general, they're, they're pretty much associated with these wetland areas. And it's really interesting. I never thought of fireflies as being one of those at-risk species, but there are definitely at-risk fireflies out there. In Canada and the States, as of at least a 2021 source, 14% of our firefly species are at risk, meaning that they've been categorized as critically endangered, endangered, or vulnerable. So there's 10 endangered species, 7 vulnerable, and luckily only one critically endangered species, you know, to look at the bright side, only one. (laughs) But over half of the species that have been described were found to be data deficient, meaning that we actually don't have solid evidence to show how their populations are doing at all, making it really hard to put protections in place for them. So that's kind of a concerning thing. We, We just, we can't really tell, like, what were their historical populations? What are their present populations? Is it going down? Is it going up? By how much? That's very important to know. So unsurprisingly, the main threats fireflies face are habitat destruction and degradation, climate change, which relates to severe weather, droughts, that sort of thing, and light pollution. I also read that in certain parts of the world, pesticide use is also definitely a threat. So any sort of broad spectrum pesticide that kills any bug it comes in contact with, that's for sure going to be a problem for them. So you can pretty much bet that for any insect, pesticide use is going to be some kind of risk, especially if it's it's a species that lives anywhere near cropland. Now, habitat destruction makes a lot of sense as a threat to this group in general because Fireflies are largely associated with wetlands, and wetlands as a habitat are extremely at risk in North America and really globally. All the at-risk species of fireflies in Canada and the U.S. are very restricted in the kinds of habitats that they live in. Some of them will use places like cypress marsh and freshwater interdunal marsh, which are basically wetlands that occur between sandy dunes, and these are both very very rare and very like spatially restricted habitats. So as we lose those already rare habitats, we're definitely going to be at more risk of losing species. There's also cause for concern with climate change because as climate change alters precipitation rates, we can expect more intense long droughts and that affects the amount of moisture in an area and in a wetland. It can also affect the height of the water table. So when a water table is higher, the wetlands will fill. When it's low, they'll drain. So that is not great for the fireflies. They need moisture, particularly so that their larvae and their eggs don't dry out. And now we also mentioned 
earlier in the episode, like Sophia, you were mentioning the tourism thing. So there's a lot of articles about firefly tourism and their effect on the populations of fireflies. Now, the tourism for fireflies and seeing these beautiful firefly assemblages seems particularly common in Asia. I read a few articles about Japan and then some in, I believe it was Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan. So that's super cool. And typically these tours are, as you described, where tourists can get on motorboats, go out into the swamps and the mangroves, and there they will see these firefly displays. Now, the concern here is that if there's too much tourism in a really sensitive place like a mangrove, you can have habitat degradation through the erosion of banks uh, from all these boats basically creating lots of waves and there's all this infrastructure that's being built for the tourists. There's also a lot of concern with foot traffic compacting soil where the larvae are growing. Uh, The other problem is like sometimes if you're looking at a species where the adult females are the kind that hang out on the ground, you're at risk of crushing like fireflies on the ground. And there's also an associated environmental pressure with the boats themselves, which can create litter and pollution with like leaking gas tanks, that sort of thing. So those are some of the negative aspects of it. But tourism can also be really good because really, when do we ever see tourism associated with insects specifically? That's extremely rare. So I'm really curious to know whether people leave these tours with an increased appreciation of insects. Like maybe they don't, but I'd love to hear from someone who has done it and what it's like. So I'm bummed that you didn't go, Sophia, but also I understand why maybe there were more exciting (laughs) things to do in Malaysia. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of reminds me of of whale watching on boats, which is, you know, there's the argument that it increases appreciation, but it's also really proven to be disruptive to the whales. And there are alternatives like land-based whale watching, but it's not as, you know, guaranteed as going out in a boat and having like a helicopter looking for whales and stuff. So... Yeah, but it's I don't know, ecotourism conversations are always so are so hard and nuanced and complicated. Yeah, and like and like some of the positive aspects are that it can provide a source of income and an economic motivation to protect natural areas like mangroves which are really at risk and like otherwise not they're not seen as necessarily like industrial value for a lot of places, like even though they are so important for like flood mitigation and stuff. OK, anyway, I'm going to get too into mangroves. But <laughs> point is that they can provide like a lot of services. But yeah. And the tours, they aren't always on boats. Sometimes they are more like walking tours or hikes. So that's the other way they can be done. You know, as always, I think ecotourism has a great potential to benefit both local communities and the environment, but it really has to be done carefully and tourists need to be properly educated when they arrive on how to behave respectfully. And they also really need to follow the rules they're given. I think especially in an era of social media, tourists are particularly keen on going off the beaten path. And going off the beaten path doesn't sound like it can cause harm, but it really can. And especially in this case, we're like, yeah, they need soil that's not compacted and compacted means like if you walk on a off the trail like even hiking you are it only takes one person walking down a trail that hasn't been walked on to like crush the soil up and make it really dense and it makes it much much harder for plants to grow in that soil and also for 
yeah, things like insects or anything that lives in the soil to use that soil anymore. It's like creating a wall for them. So just consider that if you're like going on a hike or doing some ecotourism, just really listen to the rules. There's a reason they're in place. I think it's a really good point that maybe people don't think about when it comes to insects. Like I I guess I can say that I'm guilty of that when I was looking at booking that tour. I didn't really think about, you know, if it was like a tour to view some type of charismatic megafauna like whales, I'd probably think about it more. Like, oh, what are the effects of doing a tour like this? But because it was insects, I kind of was just like, oh, well, I'm sure there are tons of fireflies and it's like not something to worry about. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And like, I want to make it clear. I would imagine like everything I read sort of was like, yeah, they've mentioned that like tourism could be a concern in some places. So just be aware of that. I think I mean, I think if I was given the opportunity to go, I for sure would. And I think maybe research the particular company and see if they have any like programs in place to mitigate the effect on the landscape. But a lot of the articles I was reading was sort of like, how do we, what are some good strategies to make sure we're getting the benefits of ecotourism without some of the drawbacks? And I think it's all, it's all good to think about when you go and experience these things. Definitely. And earlier you mentioned light pollution as an issue. How does that affect fireflies? Yeah, so because male fireflies are looking for glowing females, artificial light can really confuse them and it'll attract male fireflies to a place uh, where they're not going to find any females. And yeah, like fireflies are lovable, but they're also pretty stupid and they're not going to figure out that that light bulb they're courting isn't going to give them what they want. (laughs) So ultimately, you have less mating success. It's quite unfortunate. Anyway, I... I really want to, if you're thinking of like, oh, how do I help fireflies? Like, I think this whole fact that they're data deficient is very interesting. And it reminds me of the fact that like, if you're looking for a really great thing to do either yourself or with your family or with your, maybe you have like, you're a teacher and you have a class. I think a really great thing for people to get in the habit of doing is using an app like iNaturalist, where you can basically take photos of plants and animals and insects you see and post them on iNaturalist. And it basically will detect where and when you saw it. And you can make any other observations like if you found it under a log or it was like maybe making a weird sound or doing something weird. And you can put that on iNaturalist and scientists and governments look at that. It's it's really good data for us. Yeah, it's not like as standard as like a scientific experiment would be, but it can be very helpful when we're trying to learn about how populations are doing in an area. And particularly when there's like a population boom, let's say a whole bunch of fireflies came out all at once and lots of people were reporting on on iNaturalist, that can be really interesting because that can tell entomologists, oh, there was like a, we saw a peak in the population here or something that just the timing is helpful. And it's it's good historical data. It's a good reference point for us to look back on years, you know, in the coming years. So I really encourage people to use it. I'm very bad at using it myself. I need to get more in the habit, but I do want people to know that that is an awesome way to sort of help your local wildlife do some citizen science. Yeah, that's a great reminder. I feel like I'm really interested in stories about community science right now. And yeah, like the Christmas bird count is coming up next month. There's lots of opportunities to get involved with community science. Yeah, I got to go find a Christmas bird count group. I like haven't actually done it, which is so weird. 
Yeah, I think I'm going to go to Saturna and do the one there this year. Oh, that's so fun. I mean, I don't know if I will actually do it. I might just make pie for my dad and my friends who are doing it because <laughs> I... Oh, that sounds amazing. I don't have any bird ID, like, skills. <laughs> just get Merlin bird ID. You'll be good. Okay. Best app in the world. <laughs> I recommend it to everyone. There's another recommendation for a good app. Both owned by National Geographic, I think. Oh, wait, no. Merlin is Audubon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. That was such a great episode. I feel like Fireflies definitely lived up to the hype. And thanks, everyone, so much for listening. If you want to support the show, you can join our Patreon to get exclusive rewards. And make sure to check out the new sticker sheets on our Etsy shop. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Tune in next time to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.